Welcome to Brian Night Fellowship. Here in Turf, we've been going through Esther, uh, the book of Esther, and just kind of recap a little bit. I know we saw a, a nice musical before uh, before our sermon, uh, given by our wonderful skit team and their voices. Um, but just to recap our story a little bit, we were going through Esther, and and Esther is about. It's about the Jews who are dispersed in Persia, in Kingdom of Persia. They're away from their homeland, and they're under the reign of a Persian king. And our story takes place in one of the capitals, in, in Susa. Um, hence our title, Sleepless in Susa. Um, I'll explain the title later. But we are, we are in the story, and, and we, have, we pretty much have this Jewish woman rise up in the reigns to gain the king's favor to become queen. And during this time as she was queen, her identity has been hidden. Her Jewish identity has been hidden to the king. And now we have this villain, Haman, who comes in and he and he hates on the Jews because there's one Jew named Mordecai who would not bow to him. And because of one Jew who would not bow to Haman, Haman then declares pretty much war against against the whole entire race of people. And so we're at this point in the story where we're just not too sure what's going to happen. We know Esther is doing something, but we're not too sure what she's doing. And and right now we're getting and we're, we're right now we're getting close to the point where Mordecai's life is in danger. He's about to get killed. And Haman seems to have the upper hand. What is going to happen? And that's where we are in our narrative. And, but before we get started into our narrative, I, I do want to make a point that in the story, and, and it's not just a story, this is an actual real historical account. In this historical account, we see the Jewish people being persecuted. And, and that just seems to be something that recurs throughout history for Jewish people. And more, most recently, we've heard about the Jewish synagogue and the shooting there I mean, I was reminded of what we're going through in Esther, because this is this is this stuff has been happening to Jewish people ever since the beginning of history. And so, you know, and so before we get started in our message, I do want to spend some time just to pray for pray for them, the victims, um, the family, um, I, and I I want us to think through a little bit as we go through you know current events here uh, in our world as we think through what's happening. And I pray that we think through them biblically, um, because there's a lot of theological impact that's happening, and and, and what happened in the Jewish synagogue is one of them. Uh, so with that, let me just go ahead and open this up in a word of prayer, and we'll get and we'll get into our message. All right? Pray with me, uh, Father. I thank you for this time that we're able to gather here and and listen to you. I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be open to your word. And God, we will listen to your word and we'll listen to what you have to say to us. God, it is your word. And I pray, Father, that you will preach a better message than I can to, to the hearts of the people here. We are spirit move. And Lord, may we come before you. I also just want to lift up prayer, Lord, for the victims at the shooting in the Jewish synagogue this past weekend. And Lord, it's horrific to hear about 
it's it's horrific to hear about the hate um, and the bitterness and and Lord, there's there's this mourning that comes out of that that of that incident. And Lord God, so I I lift up Lord the victims to you. I lift up Lord the families to you. I lift up Lord the community to you. And I ask Father that your grace, your your hand, your sovereign hand will work mightily there. I pray, God, that you will move amongst the people there. And I pray that you will move the Christians in that community to be there, to stand by their side, to comfort them. Lord, may you then be sovereign as you've always been. May we then trust in you, look towards you, seek you out in all ways. Speak to us tonight, Lord. Pray this on your name. Amen. So, we're in Esther chapter 6 now. My title is Sleepless in Susa. I don't know if you guys, how many, I don't know how many guys have seen the movie Sleepless in Seattle. It's an older movie. It's a rom-com. And it, I forgot when it was released. I think back in like the late 90s or something like that. And it's, um, you know, rom-coms are like dead now. I, I, or comedy in general, I just feel like it's not been the same since the 90s or like the early 2000s. And so, I don't know, I, I maybe, maybe, I'm just, maybe I'm just too old. Um, but pretty much I just took that title and, and I stuck in Susa because, you know, it's, it's awesome. And we're going to, but, but most of all, we're going to see something that's important in our in our narrative tonight. We're going to see that there's this, that, that there is this king here and he will not be able to sleep. And that marks a very important part of our story. And hence, that's why we had this title. And this part of our story in Esther is a turning point. It's a turning point in the narrative. Now, I do want to clarify something. Last time I spoke back on Esther chapter 4. I did say that there was a turning point in that chapter. Um, I do want to clarify what I meant by that. There's a turning point in Esther 4 with the character of Esther herself. Right? In, in chapter 4, Esther, that's where she starts kind of going with the flow. She she's always been going with the flow of the crowd. Then in chapter 4, she was challenged by Mordecai. And now you see her taking action. And she's starting to do stuff. And so there's a change of her character there in chapter 4. But the story actually hasn't really changed itself. The story hasn't turned. The story doesn't turn until chapter 6, which is what we'll cover tonight. And so here in chapter 6, we will see the actual story itself turn. We'll see the tables being turned. We will see that things do not go as planned. And we'll see the tides changing. And we see all that happen starting with verse 1. It all starts with one sleepless night. And Susa. And so first thing we will see in our story in verses 1 to 4 is four coincidences, four events that occur in perfect coincidence. And so will you read with me in verse 1? Esther chapter 6 verse 1. It says this, On that night the king could not sleep. The king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And so the first coincidence we see here in verse 1 is the sleepless night. And right here, 
begins a series of coincidences that would change the entire story, that would change the future of the entire Jewish community. And on this night, this king could not sleep. And we have to ask ourselves, what's significant about this? Well, I mean, the author tells us that the king could not sleep. There's something important about it. There's something that's not right about it. There's something not normal about this. That's why it's being pointed out. Because it's not like the king has been partying all night. We know that the king loves to party. It's not like the king has been spending a night with one of his concubines. We know he has many of those, many of them. This was supposed to be a quiet night. A night where everyone just simply goes to sleep and wake up the next day. But here... In verse 1, we see that the king could not sleep. In the Hebrew text, the, 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 the translation, the literal translation is actually this. It says, sleep fled from the king. So the king here is trying to sleep, but sleep is, is going away from him, fleeing from him. So the, the king here, he's tossing and turning, he's killing sheep, he's drinking warm milk, but sleep continues to escape him. And I don't know how many of you guys have sleepless nights before. Honestly, I don't get too much sleepless nights, but there's, I do remember when I do, when, I do remember a time when I did, I did have to stay up one night and I couldn't fall asleep. It was because I, have, I had hiccups. <laughs> and when I get hiccups, guys, it's terrible. My hiccups are bad. Like my entire body just like flinches the entire time. And I, I cannot fall asleep because my entire body is shaking the entire night. And my hiccups will not, usually they're so bad, they, can't, they don't go away for like 24 hours. Um, it's worse when I was in college and I had them in class. I just I could not shut up. Um, and, and I remember that night, I was just like, it, my, my diaphragm just kept going. And I tried reading a book. I tried just, just trying to relax, just trying to breathe. I laid on my bed, my head upside down. I, I did every day and I just couldn't fall asleep. And it was, it was tiresome. I mean, you do whatever you can to fall back asleep, right? So what does the king do here? Here, we see our second coincidence. He gave orders to bring a book. A book! He doesn't, the king doesn't ask for wine to drink. He doesn't ask for a concubine to spend the night with. He asks for a book. A <laughs> chronicle of memorable deeds to be read to him. Since... The king doesn't seem to do any of himself. He needs, needs to be done for him. So he asks it to be read to him. And now, while it's pretty normal for most activities in the kingdom to be recorded down, it isn't usual for the king to ask for this book to be read. It's not usual. In fact, commentators here suspected that the king asked for this book to be read because, because this book is probably really boring. <laughs> this king... It's probably just like reading out of a textbook. And so, you know, when we tend to fall asleep when we're studying for our textbook, this king is asking for his book to be read. He probably, he's trying to bore himself to sleep. And so, can you imagine then, this king here, bored out of his mind, wanting to sleep, listening to some guy in a monotone voice, reading a long and tedious book, of his own deeds. But then we see then our third coincidence. Verse 2. It says, And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bithana, 
Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Here we see a story, a story being read. And this is our third coincidence in our story, right? We have here first the first coincidence, then in order to bring the second book, the second one. And now it's written of how Mordecai, Mordecai, one of our key figures in our story, story that we've read back in chapter two. And we know what happened in Esther chapter two. Mordecai was in the king's, at the king's gate and he overheard these two guards, Big Fana and Teresh, talking, conspiring to kill the king. And Mordecai reported it and they were stopped. They were killed for it. They were killed for treason. But when we read this story back in chapter 2, it seemed like just some side story. Right? There wasn't made much of it. It maybe made a total of like maybe one or two verses. And then we, had, we heard nothing much more about it until now. Like every good story out there, everything matters. Nothing happens by random. And what's most strange or coincidental about this is that what that story happened five years ago to this time. So there's, there's a long period of time that has happened. And it just seemed out of random, out of blue, that they so happened to read this story to the king. That's, that's amazing. What's happening here? This is not like it's a recent deed. And yet it just so happened that the king's servant read this account. So this small deed that Mordecai did, this deed that Mordecai did to save the king, plays a significant role here. The king here, the king here after listening so disinterestedly, he suddenly perks up. Suddenly his ears are burning. Who is this Mordecai? Have I forgotten about this? Did I ever thank him? The king must be wondering on this, because here's what he says in verse 3. And the king said, What honor and distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Nothing. The king is alarmed all of a sudden. You see, Back then, when Persian kings, when, when something good happened to them, when someone does a good deed for them, the king will make sure to reward those people. Because the king wants to make sure he doesn't create any more enemies. Right? If someone goes unrewarded for a while, that person might harvest up bitterness, might harvest up just this jealousy, this anger against the king. You might be wondering, what, did the king not notice me? Did the king not notice what I did? And so here, the king must be wondering, dude, Mordecai did this five years ago and he hasn't been rewarded? Is he angry at me? Is he still loyal to the kingdom? Is he stirring up a rebellion? The king decided that the situation has to be rectified quickly. And so the king asked in verse 4, who then is in the court? And here we see our fourth coincidence. Our fourth coincidence. Remember, guys, that this right here is in the middle of the night, right? The king has been sleepless. It's in the middle of the night. 
midnight, 1 a.m., we don't know. But it's in the middle of the night, everyone's supposed to be asleep, except for this king. He's up and about. And this king, therefore, has no idea who's in the court. He just asks who's in the court, because that's what he normally does when he needs advice. Right? The king doesn't make any decision on his own. We, we know that by now. So the king is asking, who's in the court? I need someone to give me some advice on what to do with this, what to do with the situation. And it just so happened, Haman, the Agagite, Haman, the man who hates Mordecai, he enters the court. This is our fourth coincidence. He enters the court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he prepared for him. Last time, at the end of chapter 5, we find Haman building this giant gallows to hang Mordecai. Now, when we say hang Mordecai, what a gallows is back then, it wasn't necessarily like a, a noose around neck. It's actually like a giant spike to impale the person. It's like, I mean, I don't know how many guys have played Mortal Kombat. It's like one of those fatality moves, right? It's a giant spike, and it's used to impale someone. And this gallows is said to be 50 cubit feet high, or 50 cubit high, which really just means it's tall. It's really high, it's really tall. And so whoever is impaled on this giant spike hangs there for all to see, for public display, for public humiliation, all for the purpose of shaming the victim and to honor the executor. Haman here at the end of chapter 5 was so excited that he built this, was so excited that he couldn't wait until the morning to ask the king for permission. He couldn't wait and so he decided to enter the court in the middle of the night. Coincidentally, on the same night, the king could not sleep. You see how all these threads are coming together? All these coincidences happening at the same time? Therefore, by mere coincidence, when the king asked for who's in the court, Haman was the one there. And so in verse 5, the king says, Haman's there, standing in the court, and the king said, let him come in. This then reaches to our second part of our narrative tonight. And we will see the man whom the king delights to honor. Let's read uh, verse 6 to 9. It says, So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Hmm, whom would the king, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, probably all proud and prompt, said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the squared city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What's the, key, what's the key phrase here? 
a man whom the king delights to honor. We see this phrase up here five times, right? We have it once here. And then we have it one more time, the king delights to honor. And then here again, number three, king of worn, the robes, ah, uh, here, here, one more time here. And then one last time here. Five times in these three verses alone. And we see it come up one more time in verse 11. This is obviously a key phrase being mentioned here. So let's take a closer look at this conversation. The king, the king here asked a question, but he kept the identity of this man hidden. We're not too sure why, but we do know that it mirrors how Haman has kept the identity of the Jewish people hidden when, when Haman went up to the king back in chapter, I believe it was chapter three. Back in chapter three, Haman went up to the king and said, there's this group of people who live by different laws who will not obey your laws and your rules. These people are rebellious people. He never says that these people are the Jews. Haman never mentions that to the king. And so the king then just pretty much said, Haman, do what you would do to them. And he, the king has no clue who these people are. And the same thing is happening here. The king did not say Mordecai's name. Just simply said, the man whom the king delights to honor. Who is this man? So Haman naturally, naturally, he thinks that the king is going to honor him. Of course he does. I mean, this is Haman. Haman who ranks second in command only to the king in this, in this empire. This is Haman who has the king's servant bowing to him. This is Haman who just enjoyed an exclusive meal with the king and queen themselves. Who else would the king want to honor? And so Haman here crafts his reply. This man, Haman, he's starving for honor. I mean, he wants it, right? He desires nothing more than to have the entire kingdom of people bowing to him. If Haman can have it his way, he will want this foolish king to bow to him. And so Haman asks for the royal clothes. Haman asks for the royal horse. He wants to ride it around the city as if he is king for the day. Haman wants to be celebrated. Haman wants all the people in the kingdom to recognize his greatness. Man. Haman's pride is so puffed up right now. I mean, he's flying high, right? He's up there. But then when we hit verse 10, man, verse 10 hits Haman so hard. He deflates him so fast that Haman drops like an anvil. In verse 10, the king reveals whom he delights to honor. Here, the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Mordecai, the Jew, the very person whom Haman desires to kill. Haman, Haman, remember, he came into the king's court looking for permission to hang Mordecai, that very person, on his gallow that he just built. 
That's what his intention was. But here, the exact opposite happens. Right? The king instead asks Haman to honor Mordecai. Like not, I mean, notice here. Notice here how opposite things has happened. Not only is Mordecai being honored, but in verse 11, we see that it is Haman who had to take the robes and the horse. It was Haman who had to dress Mordecai and led, and led him through the square. It is Mordecai who, I mean, it's Haman who had to proclaim to everyone, Thou, thus it should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Mordecai is giving honor to the very man that he hates and despises. You know, I mean, there is irony in Scripture, guys. This whole thing would be made out as a joke. And we see here just Haman being humiliated. Look at the contrast here. Remember, Mordecai was in a state of mourning last we saw him. He was in sackcloth. He was on his knees. He was crying out to God. He was fasting. He was praying because his people were about to be destroyed. And here Mordecai was in sackcloth, but Haman dresses him up in royal robes. Mordecai was on the ground, but Mordecai lifts him up onto a royal horse. I mean, Haman lifts him up into a royal horse. Mordecai was mourning for his people. Haman places him in a position of celebration, inviting the city to celebrate him as well. What a turn of events. As a side note, the text isn't clear about this, but imagine what's going on in Mordecai's mind. Because in his head, he's probably blaming himself for the destruction of his own people. Right? It was because of him that this decree against the Jewish people was out there. And now he's riding on a horse and everyone in the city, including the Jews, are probably celebrating him. They have no idea that he's what's causing their destruction. I mean, imagine what's going on in Mordecai's mind. He must be being torn apart on the inside. What? It's crazy to see what's happening here. And from this point on, it's all downhill from here for Haman. Note what, note what happens in verse 12. It says, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Mordecai here returns back to his king's gate, back to his original position. All that pomp and circumstance does not change the situation. His people are still in grave danger. And so once he got off the royal horse, once he took off the royal robes, Mordecai returns back to a state of mourning. But the real change that happens in our story here is what happens to Haman. Haman hurried back to his house. And it says here that he's mourning. Up until this time, Haman's got everything he wanted. But now here in chapter 6, we see the start of Haman's downfall. We see Haman going downhill. Right? Haman, so far throughout the story, has been pushing his rock and boulder up the hill. And at chapter 6, he has reached his apex. And now that boulder is dropping back down. 
and is crashing down on his life. Haman here is embarrassed. Here, the man that he sought to shame, the man that he wanted to kill and humiliate, was being honored. And it says Haman went back mourning with his head covered, hiding his shame. I mean, the Jews are the ones who are supposed to be mourning at this point. The very people Haman desires to annihilate, those people are supposed to be one in mourning. But yet here we see now the tables have turned. Haman, Haman is the one who is mourning. And he has his head covered in shame. And so Haman appears before his wife and his friends. And here's what he says in verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that has happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, Mordecai, for whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people. You will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. We find here a very interesting quote. Very interesting quote by Haman's people. Right before when we saw when we saw Haman's wife and his friends, they were gun ho with Haman on Haman Mordecai. They were gun ho with him on destroying the Jewish people. But now hearing the surprising turn of events, these people, Zeresh, his wife Zeresh, and all his wise men, all his friends, they recognize that a greater power is at hand. Right? These can't just be mere coincidences happening. They see an invisible force moving, and they prophesy that Haman's downfall is not complete. In fact, he will indeed fail his mission. This is stark contrast between the advice that they gave him back in chapter 5. Now, the text doesn't clarify why Haman's wise man, why his wife thinks this way. The author doesn't bother to explain it. But let's take a moment to think back upon Israel. Think upon the nation of Israel. Right now, at this moment, the nation of Israel does not exist. Right? They've been scattered across the nation. Some of them, a remnant of them have come back to Jerusalem, but they're still in the process of rebuilding it. Right? So there's no land. Right? There's no city. There's no nation. There's no walls being put up. But Israel, throughout the ancient Near East, throughout the history at that time, Israel was a key central figure of everything that's been going on in that region. Everyone had their eyes on Israel. And everyone must have heard of what's happening with Israel. All the nations around Israel knew who they were, and they knew that there's some God that they worship that's protecting them. They must have heard stories of Elijah calling, bringing down fire from above and killing 450 of Baal's prophets. They must have heard stories of David with just a slingshot killing Goliath. They must have heard of Moses parting the Red Sea so the Lord can bring Israel out of slavery. And we find in Deuteronomy verse 28, chapter 28, verse 10, this is what God says. He says, All the people of the earth shall see that you, Israel, you, Jewish people, all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. If the nations around Israel saw this, 
that they saw Israel and they knew that there's this unstoppable God on their side, why didn't they continue to attack Israel? Well, let me take that question and let me ask you this. Why do you forget to pray when you know that God listens? Why do you neglect to read your Bible when you know that God speaks through His Word? Why do you get frustrated at life when things do not go your way when you know that God is sovereign? Why do you get angry at people and judge them and gossip when you know your loving Father calls you to be compassionate and loving? Why do you lie when your honor and reputation is at stake? Why do you turn to pornography when God seeks to purify you? You see, our sins, our sins harden our hearts and our conscience against God. We may know God, but do we really believe in Him? Do we really love Him? Do we really truly believe that He is good? You see, these nations around Israel, they knew of the power of their God, but their hardened hearts chose to place themselves between, before God, chose to place themselves before God against Israel. And they choose to, to pursue their own worldly desires and place them before and above their own fear of, of Israel's God. And we do the same thing when we sin against God Almighty. Haman here in our story is a prime example of what a hardened heart looks like against God and His people. Haman here seeks to destroy Mordecai. Haman here seeks to annihilate the Jewish people. And for the first half of Esther, the situation looked bleak for the Jews. But here in chapter 6, we begin to see the work of God behind the scenes begin to see God moving. Despite Israel's continued disobedience, right? Israel themselves disobeyed God. Despite all that, God still seeks to keep this promise to Israel. God still seeks to keep this promise to His people. And that promise is this. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God makes a promise to Abraham the father of the Jews. And he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see Haman wants to dishonor Mordecai, a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, by killing him and publicly humiliating him in front of the entire city. But God... God remembers His promise. For whoever, dis, whoever dishonors you, I will curse. And so God, through a series of sovereignly divine events, <coughs> stops Haman. And now the curse is on. Haman will surely fall. And we see here a turning point. A turning point in our story. God has been working sovereignly behind the scenes. And here in this story, everything changes on one sleepless night. Just one sleepless night. And 
and on one sleepless night, God does more for the Jewish people than we can ever imagine. But yet more than that, on this night, God did more than just saving the Jews. God was also fulfilling another part of His promise to Abraham. The promise that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Because from the Jewish line comes Christ. If the Jewish people were destroyed, Christ would not come. And Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, comes to earth as a Jew. And Jesus Christ, on His way to Calvary, was not paraded like Mordecai was. He did not wear royal robes. He did not ride a royal horse. Instead, Christ faced mockery. Christ faced shame. Christ was stripped of His clothes. Christ was whipped, ridiculed, naked. And everyone laughed at Him. Everyone jeered at Him. Everyone spit on Him. And then, Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross and hung there for all to see, publicly humiliated, wearing nothing but a crown of thorns. Where was God in all of this? Why didn't God try to stop this debauchery like He did for Mordecai? What happened to the promise to curse those who cursed the Jews? Where is God on Calvary Road? God did not intervene because Christ's road to Calvary, Christ's road to the cross was exactly what God planned. That's exactly what God sovereignly wanted. The suffering that Jesus faced is exactly what God meant for him to go through. And that is how God will fulfill his promise to bless the families of the earth. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now just a note here, since I don't want you guys, we're not studying this passage, and I don't want you guys to misinterpret this. This curse here is not talking about Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. This curse here is specifically talking about the curse of the law, meaning the curse that's described in the law of Moses. So I just want to make sure you guys don't misinterpret that. But what I really want us to focus on is the blessings of Abraham. Because that does refer back to the promise made to Abraham. That does refer back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. That does refer back to the blessing that God's promised that through Abraham, all the families of the earth, including the Gentiles, they will be blessed. Do you see that? That Christ went to the cross so that we can be blessed. I mean, this turning point that we see in Esther to save the Jews, 
that helped preserve the promise that God made to Abraham. And Jesus is that promise. Christ is that blessing. And when Christ died on that cross and He rose again in three days, that one event, that singular event, is a turning point of all of history. Think about that. Think about how that one event was all part of God's plan to change the course of history for mankind. Because when we think about that, guys, man, when we think about the whole grand scheme, if that's true, and what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago, and if that changed the course of history, meaning that also changed our lives, because before we were on the road to death, when Christ came into our lives and we saw the cross for what it is, that turning point of history becomes our turning point in our lives as well. When Christ enters our lives, that changes us. When we think about God's great plan throughout history, doesn't that make you feel small? Doesn't that make you feel insignificant? And yet, yet, despite how small we are, God cares for each one of you. God has a plan for each one of you. His big plan of history is meant for you. That's amazing, guys. When we view God with such high, with such high perspective, our problems that we face in life suddenly seem so small. Because God is so big. All the worldly honor and glory that we seek, none of that seems to matter anymore in the view of God. And God, God did all that so that you can be saved, so that you can be cleansed from your sins. So, guys, find, secure your identity then in Christ. In Ephesians 4, it says to put off our old self, meaning our old sinful self, our, all of that, all that, put it away. And in Christ, put on this new self. Put on Christ. Wear Christ. Because when we put on Christ, all that glory and honor that came to Christ, everything that God has given to Christ, the glory and honor that He deserves, the royal majestic honor, that becomes ours. And that becomes permanent. Unlike Mordecai's clothes, that doesn't come off of us. We get to wear Christ for eternity. Everything that we can gain from Him, we get a share in that glory. We get a taste in that glory. We get a small piece of that, and that is worth more than any worldly honor that we can get here. Hold on to that truth. Guys, I know in turf we talk a lot about what it looks like to reach people, what it looks like to reach our campuses, 
We teach, we tell you guys, we encourage you guys to share the gospel consistently, to live it out, because it is that important, right? And we see that that this is the biggest turn of events in all of mankind history. That means it is, it matters to everyone. But if that, if you don't believe in that yourself, if you don't believe that 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 event two thousand years ago meant a turning point in your own life, yeah, of course you guys won't share about it. It has to matter for you first. Or else that event is just some guy dying 2,000 years ago. Many people have died throughout history. Why is this one death so important? But if you do see Christ as a turning point of history, specifically, if you do see Christ more as a turning point in your own life, then suddenly Jesus does matter. And Jesus matters for everyone, for every single person in this room, outside of this room. It matters if people know him or not. It matters if they believe. And so therefore, guys, tonight is just a simple ask to come and hold on to Christ. Come and embrace Christ. If you are weary out there, if you are hurting out there, if you are broken out there, lonely, suffering, you're lost hold on to Christ because he he can change you because he changed the course of history with this death how much more do you think he can do for your life that is our Savior that is our Lord come and embrace Christ hold on to him live for him wear him honor him glorify him pray with me Lord God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for a cross that back in the day was meant for shame, but you turned it and now it is glorious. What an amazing, an amazing event has happened to the cross. Death was not meant to be celebrated. But we can celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection because you're the one behind it because that is the most significant event of all of history. Lord God, may we embrace that. May we embrace Christ and hold on to Him and know Him and love Him and seek Him out. Lord, may we then be in constant prayer constantly in your word so that we can come to know Christ better. Lord God, I pray, I pray for each person in this room that Christ will become the central figure of their lives. Christ will become the central figure of their hearts. I pray, Lord, that they will seek him out. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for such a grace such a gift because without this gift we will be on the path to death because of our sins but because of Christ we now have eternal life may we hold on to him thank you Lord for this so then I pray all this in your holy and precious name Amen